Welcome to Mindful Movement with Naya, a podcast about all things mind-body connection. I'm Naya Kalmels, nationally certified Pilates teacher, yoga teacher, integrative movement specialist, and owner of Mindful Movement. This podcast is meant to educate, elevate, and inspire anyone interested in feeling and moving better. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast with Naya. Today, we have Glenn Miller, one of my favorite Pilates teachers on the show. I'm super excited to share with you all of the things that I've learned from Gwen, and she has so much more to share with you as well. Gwen, tell us a little bit about your book. I have it right here, Safe Movement for All Spines. I love it. It's also accompanying your dynamic spine year-long course, which can be taken as a standalone modular course, or you can just dive into the whole year, which is such a gift to all of your students. Tell us about kind of what inspired you to write it and create the training program that supports it. Well, what inspired me to write it is after a career or during, I'm still in the career of working with people, starting out as a Czech practitioner, right? Specializing in spines and joint issues. Um, I, I just, every time someone I was, I was the person who wasn't afraid to take on the scary sounding diagnoses. And so I ended up and still am someone who people refer to. And, and when I got far enough along in my career, after I'd been doing two decades of somebody walks into my studio or the clinic now, and they're like, I have this thing. And I'm like, okay. And so I would spend time researching every single client. Mm-hmm. And the um, and I started having uh, clients, and then when I began doing teacher training um, for a balanced body, I started having my students asking me questions that were like beyond the scope of the training courses. And then I started having people say, "You should write a book." And so, the last time I had a client actually say something like that it was someone new and he looked at me and he said how many books have you written and, and so I was like well That's I guess nice I better compliment. get on the stick yeah <laughs> so I started I just started writing and it took about five years to write the book um, but the inspiration initially is because when dealing with someone who has a spinal diagnosis or even if they don't or a hip something sacral SI joint um, or or nonspecific low back pain, which is very common. There are things in common. There's education that can be done. And I felt like I really wanted to get it in writing as a resource um, for my clients and for other teachers' clients, uh, like a reference book. And um, I wanted to you know, be able to empower the next generations of teachers with information that instead of like me having to go and do all this research, you know, where you're basically, I mean, let's be frank, you know, where we spend a lot of unpaid time serving our clients. And I wanted to have this resource available so that a new teacher could look up the chapter and really get a fast forward to learning about 
the conditions. And even an experienced teacher can look up the chapter, get a little refresher, some affirmation, some new ideas. Um, and then it's also, um, it's on the uh, Penguin Random House education website. So it's positioned to be a textbook for higher education as well. So I'm really super happy about that. Well, being uh, one of the many students in your Dynamic Spine course that uses your book as a textbook, it definitely is a higher education. And I'm so grateful that you wrote it. It's really helped me as a Pilates teacher help my clients who have issues in their spine. I came into Pilates for my own back injury and other things going on. And you're absolutely right. There's a certain level of training that we receive as teachers, but in my experience, maybe because of my own personal background, the majority of my clients have some type of condition going on in their spine, whether it's really mild to severe. And so your your courses and your book have been an amazing resource. And of course, just you <laughs> have really been an amazing resource for the work that we do. So thank you so much because writing even one book is a huge task to take on. So thank you for your dedication to our profession and for helping so many teachers better serve their clients. I think the ripple effect from your work will continue for years and years um, long after you have written it and published it. Thank you, Naya, <laughs> for not saying die. <laughs> well, I was trying to choose my words carefully, but you know, eventually it'll happen. Strategy, yeah, I know. That, that's pretty <laughs> funny. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and the idea is that one of the really important things when I, when I wrote safe movement for all spines is that, that it would be accessible and that it covered more than one modality. As we're movement teachers, many of us are cross-trained, but even if we're not, um, you know, we may have someone come in who has experienced a different movement modality. Um, I think it's it's really important that the language is clear. I looked at one of the questions the publisher asked uh, when when I was uh, filling out the the um, uh, the application for consideration to publish a book is like, you know, what are the other books in this genre and why is yours different? And I, and I looked at the other books and I said, well, the, first of all, most of the other books, if not all of the other books, I haven't found one that's like inclusive of more than one movement modality myself yet are for consumers, for lay people, they're dumbed down. They like literally talk down like you're stupid and I'm like, people aren't stupid. People are smart. And so can we use a vocabulary that honors that? And then the trade, like the textbooks for intended for teachers that are modality specific, the language was super like technical to where, I mean, I've got a really good vocabulary. I'm, I've been a lifelong reader. I would have to take the dictionary out. <laughs> and I'm like, this is not accessible. So I had so many people read the book that were lay people, clients, you know, instructors. I had PTs, exercise physiologists, you know, uh, I had a lot of people read the book. And, and really one of the most important things was let's make sure that it's accessible because if it's not understandable, then it won't help people. And I want to help people. 
I feel like that could be your tagline, Gwen Miller. <laughs> if it's not understandable, it's not going to help people. And I want to help people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Maybe so, so. But yeah. yeah. Well, communication is everything. I mean, you know, I think in our last uh, podcast together, we were talking about the nervous system and co-regulation leading to self-regulation. And is so if I use a word that is not understandable, how do how is, does that make someone feel? Do they feel less than or inadequate because they don't have the vocabulary? Are they going to feel like they're welcome to ask a question? Are they going to feel like dumb if they ask a question? You know, so why not like like just circumvent all of that stuff from happening and let's just use some real language people even as as an instructor of lay people when i teach my spine safe mat classes um, i will practice my vocabulary my anatomy vocabulary for me but i my personality is a little lighthearted, so i'll just say you know we this movement is important because of this or this is working on this muscle and then I'll say in English, that means, you know, and so they'll laugh and then I'll translate. Um, and so I'm kind of like poking fun at myself when right. I do that. So I like that. So your book goes into a variety of different spinal conditions. And we've talked about a whole variety of conditions just in some of the teacher training you've done, mostly spinal conditions, but also the human body has lots of different conditions in which it can live. What drew you to teaching to special populations, to helping other teachers help people who have um, certain things going on in their body that might not be what the mainstream teacher focuses on? I not only do I have my own spine issues going on, so degenerative disc disease and degenerative joint disease in my thoracic spine from being very overweight with very poor posture for a number of years. The, the ability for people to take agency and be able to heal from painful conditions, I think is, it's a, it's a joy. It's a joy for me to be able to help people in that way. And I also, in my family, my grandmother had osteoporosis and that was before we knew as much as we know now about it. And I saw her go from being you know, a fairly upright 70 year old to being a 93 year old who was so bent over and had multiple vertebral fractures and a hip fracture. Um, and when she died, she had been in a lot of pain for her last few years. And I, I'm still convinced if she had the resources that we now have, she could her her mind was so great it was the body you know and it was preventable it was totally preventable my dad healed his own uh, disc herniation when i was a 10 or 11 year old kid uh, mm -hmm. without surgery and so i have seen personal examples in my family with me with my clients 
of the ability of the body to heal when given the right guidance, the direction. Okay. And so I felt really called to work with the population because I just, it's a puzzle and it's, it's a wonderful area where we can do so much. And it's, it's so frustrating to me sometimes that, um, that we don't have as much available for people to really take agency and to work on their own bodies with a belief that they can heal, that they can become better, that they can become pain-free. Um, so that's, you know, I'm really kind of on a mission to like change the world one spine at a time. <laughs> you will. <laughs> but that's why. Yeah. I, I so respect what you do. Um, you and I have talked about my journey into Pilates as well. And I injured my spine at 25 years old. And at the time I was very healthy and very active. And I didn't know that somebody could heal themselves until I discovered Pilates. And it just happened to be a really progressive neurosurgeon that recommended that I do that instead of surgery, despite other doctors offering to operate on me. And I was in tremendous pain and unable to walk well and all those things. So I, I know the work that you do changes lives because it changed my life. And when I read your book, I, I keep going back to those early days when I was a patient and was uh, try not to get emotional when I was a patient and I didn't know what resources were out there. And I just went through what I consider to be the traditional channels. You get hurt, you go see a doctor in, within your insurance network, if that's the way your insurance operates. You may or may not get a diagnosis. You may or may not get some imaging or diagnostic tests. And then you might be referred to a different doctor or a physical therapist or something else. And I remember being um, through my insurance company, seeing a doctor and being told that I had bulged discs in my spine, but I also had pain radiating to my hips and down my legs and when they did the x-ray, they found I had osteoarthritis in my right hip, which was pretty shocking at 25 years old. So I had so many questions and I was told we're only going to focus on where the discs are bulged. That's your chief complaint, or that's the area that you have the most pain, not the only place you have pain, but just where it's most prevalent. And so that's what we're going to focus on. And so for years, I always focused on those discs between L4 and L5 and L5 and S1 and it wasn't until much later that I realized how it was affecting my sacroiliac joint, how it was still affecting both hips, particularly my right hip. And then reading your book just recently, chapter six, I believe it is, is about the sacroiliac joint. And chapter seven is about the hips. And in chapter seven about the hips, you talk about how your spine affects the hips and the hips affect your spine and one and the other can't be separated from each other. And it was so powerful to hear those words and really know the truth behind them. But I also find frustration that it's taken me with almost 20 years of dealing with this injury to, to meet someone and see something in writing that states that so emphatically and, and then backs it up. 
<laughs> with all of the anatomy and the deep knowledge that you possess. Why is that so uncommon in our current medical system to look at the body holistically like that? And yeah. what do we do about that as people trying to live in our best body possible? I know that's a, those are two questions and they're those both are really two big questions. questions. Yeah, they really are. And, and um, I just, I really want to say, you know, like, good job, Naya, for not giving up on yourself, really. And thank God you had somebody say, oh, not only no, but heck no, I'm not operating on the spine of a 25-year-old young woman. And let's see if we can find another way. Um, for the not- record, that was the sixth doctor I saw for the mm-hmm. same injury. It wasn't until I saw number six that I got anything that was self-empowering. Sometimes surgery is warranted. And I just want to come out right out now and say that sometimes surgery is necessary. And thank God we have surgery. And at the same time, we have this medical model that we're looking at where, yes, they want to look at the chief complaint. They're not really looking at everything that can be driving it. And the paradigm is um, maybe you do some testing, some diagnostic imaging, um, you do a cortisone shot, you do some type of other medical intervention, you do surgery, they don't, you get sent to PT, PT has to only look at the area of chief complaint. That's about insurance. That's about money, really. It's about the insurance uh, codes. Uh, But, but um, to keep searching, you know, that, you know, to have the energy for that for that many years, that's, that's huge. The, um, you know, I, I don't know why we cannot have a more holistic medical model. I was just working with someone yesterday and looking at, I, I get these like two inch thick stacks of backgrounds and, and surgeries and medications. And I'm not a doctor and I'm looking at these things and I'm going, you know, I'm not a doctor, but here's what I suggest you ask your doctor about you know, and I'll look at the entire thing. Um, this is why I'm really on a on a mission too, to train more people, to train more trainers and instructors, because I think we're the ones that are going to be the bridge. The so when a person finishes with the doctor, the doctor sends them to PT, PT does the eight sessions and they return to their measurable function. And I actually just went to PT for my foot and the PT said, well, what are your goals? And I was like, well, she said, do you want to stand on your feet for eight to 10 hours? Cause that's what I do all day. And I was like, well, no, not really. <laughs> and she said, no, no, I need to, I need to have these measurable goals. So she needs to no, she needs to check this box to be able to, it's, it's our medical model. Yeah. And that's how they're getting paid from insurance. Right. Yep. So, but um, when someone's finished with that, are they, are they really restored to full function? you know, often not, often it's not quite the way the person used to be. And do we need to accept that? Is that part and parcel with aging? I don't think so. I don't think it has to be. So 
often we will find that people are referred to yoga or Pilates or personal training to help to restore them to function. And so here we are, we're this bridge profession. And so to be able to up-level our own skills so that we can meet that person and then developing a um, a network of medical professionals and allied health professionals, I think that's really great. I, I consider that I'm part of a team when I'm working with someone who's uh, you know, post rehab or whatever that situation is. But um, yeah, I, I, I wish that it were different and it's not, but we can make it different where we are. When we meet that person, we can be the ones who look at the whole thing. We can be the ones who say, yeah, your spine's doing this and let's look at how that's affecting your pelvis and let's look at your gait and let's look at your head carriage and let's look at your movement patterns right? Let, let's let's figure this puzzle out that is this human being. I don't know if you can answer this question, but I have been curious. Is there any research that has been done on the, the efficacy of this more um, kind of micro lens approach where you're only addressing the chief complaint versus what you just talked about, a more holistic model where you're looking at the quality of somebody's movement. You're looking at how all of the individual parts of the body line up with each other and move together. Is there any research out there about that? No, I haven't seen any. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, but that is part of the reason why we have the model that we do, because you can do a double blind study on on the effectiveness of a cortisone shot for a person with hip bursitis, just to throw a topic out. And, and you can have the, you know, the control group and the treatment group. Okay. And you can do your six week test and whatnot. There really isn't because, because recovery is, it, it also contains subjective data it's like, how do you feel, Naya? I can't really chart like your response on a graph that is verifiable by anybody but you. Can mm-hmm. I? I mean, it's it's very subjective. So when we're looking at what works and what doesn't work, a lot of the what works has to do with um, it's it's a subjective kind of a story that you know, we know that massage therapy is good. We know that there is mechano transduction of tissue compression and that people who are in each other's spheres are sharing energy. We, we do know all that some of that's being proven. Okay. With studies. And, um, but, but in the medical field, what's proven to work is what the insurance is going to pay for. So luckily big HMOs are starting to do things like you know, I, I was so impressed that that I had the choice of a female doctor of osteopathy for my PCP, and that that Kaiser refers to acupuncturists now. I mean, that's really cool. So things are starting to happen. Yeah, yeah. So, but we're working that, our way towards progress. We're working our way toward it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now there's hope. <laughs> Yeah. I like to hear that. I like to hear that. And, and hopefully 
more patient education too, so that they do make their way to people like you and I and all of our friends in this movement education world, whether they're yoga teachers, personal trainers, body workers, Pilates teachers, et cetera. Well, um, this is this is one of the reasons. Sorry, I cut you off. I'm I didn't. I'm sorry. No, but that's okay. This is one of the reasons that I'm so motivated with the dynamic spine course that I created because because you know I want to have trained people that are comfortable and confident in working with folks who are coming out of situations like that that understand how to problem solve and troubleshoot. And it's not diagnosing. That's that's the medical realm. Um, my vision really is that 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 my book is in hospital waiting rooms and in schools and in physical therapy schools and chiropractic schools and in clinics and offices. And that there is a whole, you know, bunch of us that are all kind of a safe movement for all spines sort of certified that we, that people know that we've received the training to be able to really intelligently work with people in a holistic way and, and guide people into movement that is healthy and safe and beneficial. Yes. I love that. And I would like to live in that world where your book is in schools and in hospital waiting rooms. I love that. And speaking of your book, uh, we just finished a module in your dynamic spine course from the book. It was chapter nine, all about scoliosis. And I shared in our workshop that both my mom and my brother have scoliosis. So it's something that I've heard about my whole life, but I didn't actually know that much about it until I started working with people who have scoliosis of a variety of um, grades, I would say. <laughs> and I would love to hear from you what you think people with scoliosis need to know about their own bodies. Forget about the teaching for a moment of teachers, but just people who live in a body where they know that they have scoliosis. What would you say to them? I would say that your spine is beautiful and you are a unique individual and that for you to maintain your spine in a healthy state, I highly recommend finding some form of elongation that works for you that you can practice every single day, no fail, mm -hmm. and that you make movement an integral part of your life. So pick something you enjoy doing because you won't do something that you think you have to do. So there's no shoulds here, but make movement a part of your life on a daily basis. 100% of the people that I work with and know who have scoliosis in their spines do better with regular exercise, hands down. Yeah. Can you just explain what you mean by elongation in case listeners don't know exactly what that is? Right. And that's in several places in my book because it's not just the spine with scoliosis that can benefit from elongation. So it is a gentle form of what's called distraction in other worlds. It is the reversal of the effects of gravity on your spine. So that can be done by um, hanging 
from a pull-up bar with your feet on the floor, though, not with the feet lifted. It's very important to differentiate that. That can be done by uh, gripping the edge of a kitchen sink and folding at the hips and kind of letting your weight go back towards your hips. It can be done in an inversion table. Um, it, it just those are examples. It can be done like in an Iyengar yoga um, environment with the uh, yoga strap around the hips in a downward facing dog. Even downward facing dog is an elongation, mm -hmm. right? So if we're focusing our down dog from pressing through the palms, so you've got your hasta banda, right? And you're pressing and your, your idea is that from the palms through the sit bones is this long line bending the knees as much as is needed so the pelvis can move to support that long line so we don't worry about heels to the mat that's it's, it's all good that's that's ankle flexibility that's a whole different ballpark i so, have a lot of people that love hearing this i just want you to know that gwen yeah yeah <laughs> so that's have to touch the floor yes i'll do down dog they, now they don't ever have to touch the floor and you can bend your knees because the primary purpose in my world of down dog is spinal elongation and that's an active axial elongation so axial refers to our spine and when we are actively elongating, it's kind of the same, same thing can be done upright. It's like pressing through the soles of the feet to maybe when you're sitting, like lifting up, like using the muscles that surround our spine to gain more height. These are things we all can do. So elongation, the, the, the lovely thing about a more passive elongation is it allows for uptake of fluids into the intervertebral discs. These are the little pieces, the cushiony pieces in between the vertebra that get compressed over time and with gravity and with loading. And in a spine with scoliosis or a spine with stenosis or other spinal conditions, you know, uh, some sometimes the discs are receiving more wear and tear, and so they're in a compressed state, so they're dehydrated. So if we can kind of draw them apart, even if it's a tiny, tiny, tiny amount, negative pressure says there's going to be fluid going in there. So, so that's super important for everybody. Walking, super important. Right, that's compression decompression. So you're creating a pumping action. And if someone has trouble walking, I tell them walk in a pool because then you've got the gravity release again. So there's an elongation moment in the pool. And then you're also going against the water and you're able to um, get some exercise as well in a more comfortable environment. I love all of those things. You're bringing me back to um, beginning of my back injury where I was pool walking and learning all about keeping those discs hydrated. Does child's pose also qualify as elongation? If the knees are apart and the torso is between the thighs, okay. if it's, um, if child's pose is done with the torso laying across the thighs, there tends to be more flexion. And so the discs are not, uh, they're loaded unevenly. That makes so, sense. Yeah. So the child's pose that I do is like legs, knees really apart. And that's actually can be you know, a little bit more comfortable for those of us that have a little bit more tummy. <laughs> or just more comfortable. Because or just more comfortable. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's definitely my preferred way of doing it. 
Well, you know, and if, if child's pose is inaccessible and we have uh, wrist issues uh, that are maybe not, you know, comfortable in uh, down dog, you've got uh, puppy pose, I think is the, is the pose in between them, right? So we can be extended behind in the air on the knees. I mean, there's, there's a million different ways that we can do it, but if we just keep in mind, the goal is to create an environment where the spine can be lengthened and I'm not talking extension. I'm talking like longer, like we're creating room. Yes. Many of the spinal pathologies in, you know, that I see in much of the nonspecific low back pain, it's a matter of space. Yeah. We just, yeah. That makes so much sense to me. What would you say to movement educators and practitioners about what they need to know in order to help their clients or students that come into their group classes? that have scoliosis. Oh, they have scoliosis. I see. Yeah. So when we're, especially mm. when we're teaching group classes and we don't get to work one-to-one -one with an individual who has scoliosis, how can we help them move safely and actually support their healthy movement? Yeah. I think giving options where we are encouraging um, not going into end range especially in range rotation. Mm -hmm. And, and I think giving options to um, for like stopping at, at any given point. So like, especially when we're progressing into, oh, I don't like that word progress, but anyway, when we're moving toward a more, um, you know, a expression, like a bigger expression of a pose maybe like the preparatory poses, like if you feel comfortable here and want to stay here, go right ahead, you mm -hmm. know, and then modeling, maybe model that, that bigger expression, but then coming back to the preparatory one. And if you decided to do this and it's a little too much for today, you know, then come on back to this one and you can model one that's not the super, you know, when, when we're teaching, it's, it's not about our practice. It's about it's about the student's practice that we're guiding. Um, I would also say when welcoming people with differences in their spine into a group class, um, let's not try to fix. Mm -hmm. It's not, that's not our, you know, unless you've had specific special advanced training in working with scoliosis, do not try to fix. The best service that we can do is provide avenues for elongation and provide avenues for core strengthening and direct back strengthening. Okay, provide an avenue for uh, nervous system uh, down regulation, you know, that peace and that just feeling of well being that we get when we've had a really good movement experience. Those are the things we want to focus on. I, I love that. And I think that in many cases, people come to our classes so that they can feel that sense of well-being more so than doing any specific exercise or addressing any particular problem or goal for that matter. It's the feeling that you walk out feeling more empowered in your body. Than yeah. When yeah. Maybe a little taller, you know, maybe a little bit more, you know, just at peace. Yes. Going back to our first episode and polyvagal theory and talking about the nervous system. Yes. We want people to walk out of our sessions together of any kind and feel more at peace within themselves and hopefully within the world. And yes, I, 
I feel that very much in our interactions and in watching you as a teacher and in reading your book, I was so pleasantly surprised by chapter 11, the language Mm -hmm. of healing. And I've, you know, we talked earlier about not having a book that had multiple modalities and multiple spinal conditions in it. Somehow you've managed to write a beautiful book that is dedicated to movement practitioners from Pilates, yoga, personal training, and include it. How many spinal conditions are in your book? There are, hmm, let's see. Well, more than five. There's five chapters on spinal conditions, but the chapters have more than one thing in them, like related things. And then we've got SI joint, uh, sciatica, hips, hypermobility, which is not directly a spinal thing, but it it can really involve the spine um, uh, and scoliosis. So it says 21 spine and hip conditions on the subtitle. Yes. The publisher did that. I haven't counted. There might be more. <laughs> <laughs> at least 21. At least 21. Yeah. And then you also include at the end a whole chapter dedicated to the language that you use when you're teaching about all of these things. Yes. Talk to us about that. That is such a beautiful addition. I've never seen a book about movement in the way that we're teaching it you know, based on the anatomy and the condition itself that also includes the language that should be used or that could be used to really get the most benefit out of it. Yes. And that, that's a really personal chapter for me. That's, that's how I talk. That's how I've trained myself or taught myself to communicate. It's, it's, it's important to be able to communicate in a way that we're not othering someone or spotlighting them. And especially when someone has experienced pain and they have been through a gamut of scary diagnoses, or even if they don't understand a reason for what their experience is, if we can phrase our languaging in a way that is gentle and inclusive as opposed to spotlighting and you know non-inclusive like I would never want to until I know somebody really well I mean you know just just point somebody out as being different Mm. because they already feel like there's something wrong with me and I just don't want someone to feel that way in my class, in my sphere, in my world. Mm-hmm. So I chose a few key um, areas of speech that I've personally worked on changing in my own communication. Like, uh, how do I, how do I cue, you know, like inclusive cueing, it might sound weird to say, now let's raise our arms up, you know, and then let's go ahead and palm pressed together down to our hearts, right? Let's, instead of now, what I want you to do is, you know, it's, it's a completely different feel, right? I really strongly dislike it when I'm in a class and I keep hearing that over and over again. What I want you to do is now what I want you to do, there's like this inner rebel in me that wants to just run out and do something different. Like I want to do something different than what you want me to do. Yeah, yeah. But when it's an invitation, 
I, I want to join in. It's a completely different feeling. Same thing with, with repetitive speech habits. Like the next thing we're going to do is, I mean, sometimes there's a place for that, but sometimes it just gets to be a habit. And, you know, it's like watching the evening news. Like now we're going to preview what we're going to do after the commercial break. I'm like, I, I just go to commercial break. I'm going to go to the bathroom and come back and I'll see you, you know, after the, you know. there's something interesting happening. But see, I, I thought it was important to do because we may not be aware of how our language lands with others. So if we can, if I can play with like, what is the awareness? So one of the big awarenesses that I personally had was around the use of the word should. And so Wayne Dyer, back in the 70s, when I had the good fortune to see him live, and I actually found my notes from that, from that, <laughs> yeah, and I've, I've got a story to tell about that, but we probably didn't have time for it. But anyway, so he was doing this talk on transformation, and and uh, it was just, it was revolutionary. And he talked about using the word should, and he said, you know, you need to stop using the word should because if you should all the time, it's like, stop shooting all over yourself. And I was like, ah, you know, and, but I decided that should is a judgment and it actually isn't a positive judgment. It's not an invitation, like what you just said. And I decided to just as an exercise, try to cut it out of my life. And I was absolutely amazed at how often I said it, but I was saying it to myself. I was saying it to myself a lot. So (laughs) when I, when I start talking with my clients about, they're talking about, oh, I have a bad back. And I'm like, you know, if your, your back has really been doing the best it can. Okay. If your back, I mean, how would you feel if you were your back and you were telling it that it was bad? It's not very good, you know? So now once I, I go down that path with clients and with students, if I say something negative about myself, they're calling me on it. And I'm like, yes, thank you. Because I don't, you know, I, I feel like our language choices can, can make or break a safe environment. Mm-hmm. And then we start getting into some of the awarenesses that we've had in the last few years where really it, it, it was a, it's a two by four to the head that we have 400 years of history in our country where our black brothers and sisters and our native American brothers and sisters have been just mistreated. I mean, it's just, I, I, I don't have words. And, and so the language choices also having to do with like, let's find out, like, you know, I don't know if someone's lived experience might include an experience with a word or a phrase that might be a negative trigger for that person. So then as someone who cares about other humans, and I want to communicate something that's healing to other humans, I feel like it's my responsibility to change my way of communication so that that human being feels welcomed and safe and that I'm not unwittingly treading on a sore spot. That's not what I'm here for. So that's why I wrote the chapter. I wrote the chapter for all those reasons. Thank you for writing that chapter. 
It, I agree. It's it's so important. I know that I have my own work to do to make sure that I'm not shitting all over myself or anybody else. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and I appreciate having a little bit of a guide for that. And I've been working on my own language. So I was really pleased to see a resource for that. And I, I've been in classes where I've felt either spotlighted or I've felt like the language used meant that class really wasn't for me uh, for a variety of reasons. And some, and it can be so nuanced and so, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Unintended, right? Yes. So I appreciate having that guide for that. How would one know if they, if that doesn't come naturally to them, how would they know if using inclusive language is not actually what they're doing? And then what do they do about it? Yeah. Well, that again, that, that kind of comes down to a little bit of self-examination. I mean, one, one way to bring a tremendous amount of self-awareness is to record yourself teaching. And you'll figure out your repetitive speech patterns and whether you're walking the whole room the same direction every single time and only cueing the same people every single time. And you've like left out a whole, you know, you'll find out a lot more than just about your language choices. Um, One way is to look around you and say, see, who are you teaching? Do you have a cross section of the population in your geographic area represented amongst your clients and your friends and your colleagues or do you not does everybody look like you or do they represent different lifestyles and body types and shapes and colors and you know life choices right and so if not why is that and then so that's like a more of a global perspective and then a micro perspective could be pay attention like look at people's faces remember our vagus nerve right our expression from the corner of the eyes down to the bottom of the chin says a lot this is one of the things that when someone has a flat affect like you know our our children and adults who are on the autism spectrum or who are neurodivergent may have a flat affect it, it, we're missing a huge piece of instinctive communication, but in the presence of that instinctive communication, you can't hide your first response. You cannot hide it. Okay. So if you are talking and you're really looking at the people that you're speaking to and you see someone kind of like stiffen, you know, you may have touched a nerve. Yeah. You know, and when you're new at this, you could also say something to the effect of, so when I started working as a um, volunteering for the balanced body community expansion program. Okay. I, we got into all kinds of, you know, this, you know, education and language and really understanding because, you know, as a, as a privileged white person and white people in our country are privileged. Okay. Because we just, that's a whole nother podcast, Uh but 
as a person who was basically living most of my life unaware of the deep racial inequities in our country, um, I have needed to and continue to do education so that I can learn. And, and so when I work with someone in a population that may be relatively new to me, you know, um, I'll say, look, I'm, I'm going to do my best. And if I say anything that, you know, strikes a chord or strikes a nerve, or if I say something wrong, like, just tell me, please, so that I can learn. And if I see an expression on somebody's face, I'll say is something that I said, you know, did something that I say bother you, you know, and, and then own it, don't make excuses for it. You own it, you apologize, you move on. Yes. It can be hard not to try to justify what I meant was, yeah. Yeah, but but I just meant, you know, no, that's that's no. Yeah, you own it, you apologize, you move on, and you learn. And having that open communication, that's beautiful. It has to happen. Yeah. You know, it's just like in, you know, anybody, like, you know, when when you marry someone, your partner doesn't come from the same family as you come from. There's a different culture, right? It's going to another country. It's like, what is the, what does that other country, what do people dress like? What are they, what is the culture so that we can be non-offensive when we go into another country? I mean, these are things that are considerations. You know, we, none of us are perfect. I think what we need to do is be respectful, and having to learn, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you are such a beautiful role model for so many different reasons. And I, you know, we've talked about all of your teacher training, your own background coming into the health and wellness world. We've talked about your book, um, you know, even things like going back to some of like the neuroscience and polyvagal theory for me as one of your students, this last piece that we talked about, the way in which you are so empathetic and compassionate to all people is really what makes my experience learning from you so meaningful. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and share so many of your different gifts with all of our listeners. It's really an honor to have you here. I'm going to include all of your information in the show notes so that other people can reach you and continue to learn from you. And I hope to have you back on the show again in the future, because I know there were so many topics that we've reached today that we could have just kept talking about. And this last part, well, I hope our conversations (laughs) never end. I want them to keep going. (laughs) Oh, they definitely will. It's, it's wonderful. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much, Gwen. Thank you, Naya. It was really fun talking with you. I appreciate all your love and your light and everything that you bring to the world. Thank you. That wraps up this episode of Mindful Movement with Naya. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we'd appreciate your support through Buy Me a Coffee. Link in show notes. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. It takes less than a minute and it really helps us out. If you'd like more Mindful Movement resources, check out our website, at nayapilates.com.